Well, it's good to be back with you. I was gone last week uh, to an academic conference in Texas. It was nice. There was a, a, a PCA church about 20 minute walk from my hotel and so I walked over for church and I got there 15 minutes earlier or so and I was the only person in the sanctuary. It was a big sanctuary. Probably our whole building could fit in it. Um, and I was there and maybe at the start of service there was maybe this many people or less in the, in the service and we started singing, and then after the first couple songs, I looked around and realized that 200 people had somehow snuck in after the <laughs> first 10 minutes or so of the service. Uh, and it was, it, was a, it was a blessing to just simply be present in a service, um, and they had a nice music director who played well. Um, but truth be told, the congregational singing is better here at the chapel than <laughs> at this large church in Texas. Uh, it's also good to be reminded as a minister that uh, on my better days, I hope that I'm helpful to you, but... The church, Wiser Lake Chapel, continues whether I'm here or not, and you guys can function just fine without me. That's a good, good reminder to me. Well, open your Bible up uh, this morning to Zechariah chapter 14. It should be three or four pages before the end of the Old Testament, uh, right before Matthew there. With Thanksgiving firmly behind us, we've entered what we often call simply Christmas time. It's a time of hustle and bustle. There's Christmas lights on houses, Christmas songs on the radio, and for the better part of a month, everyone is busy preparing for Christmas Day, for gift exchanges, for maybe a family meal, for arranging travel to see family and friends. But in the Christian calendar, the four Sundays before Christmas Day are the four Sundays of Advent. The Feast of Christmas actually begins on Christmas Day and runs until January 5th. It is a season of preparation, but it's not simply preparing for the Christmas feast when we celebrate Christ's birth, but a season of preparation for Christ's return. One way Christians prepare for Christ's return is looking back to the Old Testament saints who waited patiently with hope and expectation for the coming of the Messiah. So this Advent, as we prepare ourselves both for the Christmas feast and for Christ's return, we're going to reflect on the prophecies from four minor prophets. Uh, that's what the year C lectionary readings, one of the options, you know, there's four texts in the lectionary, but we're going to go with the minor prophets. This week we begin with the prophet Zechariah, and we're going to look at Zechariah 14, 1 through 9. Zechariah prophesied from the Babylonian exile. So he's kind of in the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, in that time in the Old Testament history. But as the book progresses, Zechariah's message becomes less closely tied to the immediate context of the return from exile and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And instead, in these latter chapters of the book, the language is dominated by symbols and metaphors and paints a sort of impressionistic picture of things to come. Listen for these pictures as we read Zechariah 14, 1 through 9. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. 
On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azal. You shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. This is God's word. My outline this morning is simple. It follows the simple pattern of Zechariah's own prophecy. First, the nations rage, but second, God wins. First, the nations rage. The nations rage. Zechariah's prophecy as a whole, this prophecy we've just read, is meant to encourage God's people to look forward with hope, to live in patient expectation. But do you see how dismally he begins in verses 1 and 2? Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. And I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Oh dear, if this is encouragement, I'd hate to see Zechariah trying to discourage someone. It's not a promising note to start on. He says, a day is coming when your possessions will be taken out in your driveway and divided by your enemies, when the nations will gather for battle. And that's what we have here in verse 2, a typical picture of what happens in war. Cities taken, houses plundered, women abused, people forced from their homes. Why does this battle come? Often in the Old Testament, the prophets warn of coming calamity and disaster that will come if God's people do not return to God's ways. Indeed, the opening word in Zechariah 1 is, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, and I will return to you. But here in Zechariah 14, Zechariah is not warning about any punishment for disobedience. There's no mention in the chapter of sin or rebellion by God's people. Simply a battle will be coming. But there's more. Do you see at the beginning of verse 2 there? God says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Even this terrible scene of war in some mysterious sense is within God's control, subject to his sovereign authority. God allows the nations to rage against his people. When does this battle come? 
Zechariah says on that day, but if you read through the book of Zechariah, every prophecy from chapter 12 through the end of the book begins on that day, on that day, on that day. It starts to become a very long day. The language here is vague enough that it might apply to several occasions in the Bible. It sounds rather like uh, uh, the Pharaoh's siege of Jerusalem shortly after Solomon's reign. It sounds like Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem that's described in Isaiah 36 and 37, although, of course, there the Assyrians never actually enter the city since the angel of the Lord miraculously strikes Sennacherib's army. Then again, what Jeremiah, uh, Zechariah here describes sounds like the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in 597 and 587, when the Babylonians did enter the city, destroy the temple, and take the people into captivity. Is Zechariah saying then there will be another Babylonian captivity? It sounds like the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 or any of the dozen other sackings of Jerusalem between David's day and Jesus's. For that matter, it sounds like the sack of Rome by the Visigoths in 410 AD during St. Augustine's life, like the sacking of countless other cities throughout history. And that's precisely the point. Zechariah is not trying to warn us in coded language about some particular war that will come on a certain day. Rather, he's telling us that God's people in all ages should expect opposition. Zechariah is not sugarcoating the life of faith. He says the nations will rage. Expect opposition. We should remember that globally many Christians face violent persecution and opposition like Zechariah describes. Even in the last uh, year or two, there's been violence against Christian leaders and Christians in Myanmar. Church leaders in China have been arrested and so forth. So many Christians even today experience precisely what Zechariah 1 and 2 describes. But we should expect less extreme forms of opposition as well. Uh, we're taking a break from 1 Peter, but one of the main themes of 1 Peter that we've been studying is suffering. Peter there describes the opposition that Christians should expect. He says you're going to suffer for your faith. He says as Christians you should expect to be criticized, insulted, slandered, mocked for not joining in wild partying. Peter simply says the same thing as Zechariah. Christ himself faced opposition, and so God's people, Christ's followers, should expect the same thing. Friends, there's no way around it. You will be misunderstood by your family. You will be criticized by your friends, insulted by neighbors, mocked by co-workers. The life of faith involves opposition. The reason is because Jesus himself is provocative and divisive. People don't mind if you say Jesus is or he's your truth, but that's not what Jesus says, is it? Jesus doesn't say I'm a way or I could be your truth. He says I am the way and the truth and the life. And he says no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes a totalizing claim. He says there's no middle ground left. Ultimately, Either you submit to Jesus and come to the Father through him, or you oppose him. There's no neutral middle ground at the end of the day.
Zechariah passed where we ended this morning in verses 16 and 17. Zechariah says, Everyone who survives from all these nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. One day all these nations who are attacking God's people will join in worshiping God. But Zechariah continues, If any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If you've been in the evening Deuteronomy study, you remember rain's one of those covenant curses. When people, God's people rebel against him, he withholds rain from their land. And that's what Zechariah is saying here. He's saying there's no two ways. There's no neutral. Ultimately, you will either join in worshiping the Lord as king or you will end up being punished for refusing to worship. Jesus is the decisive dividing factor in all of history. And this is why Christians are called to carry the message of Jesus into the world. Everyone will ultimately fall into one of two camps. They'll join in going up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord as king, or they will not. We're sent out to invite others to go up and join us in worshiping the king. That's what it means to share the good news with others. It's saying, I, I, I join together with other people to worship the true king. Would you consider joining me? Some will criticize, insult, slander, mock. It's expected when you preach the good news. But others will the message Jesus, and eventually their lives will be transformed by it. Been hearing the will sign to others on the day of appearing and worship him. Zechariah is encouraging, warning God's people, warning that we'll face options. Opposition doesn't mean you're doing things wrong. It doesn't mean you give up on the faith. It's to be expected. Of course, Christians shouldn't be obnoxious. We shouldn't be needlessly offensive. In fact, Paul says Christians should be known by the fruit of God's Spirit in their lives, by their love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We should be known by our kindness, our gentleness, our self-control. But even then, even at your most kind, your most gentle, you will face opposition as the nations rage. Well, Zechariah starts out on a low note, but this war in the first two verses is really God wins. In the end, God wins. God fights for his people. Do you see this decisive turning point in verse 3? Things are dire for Jerusalem. The nations gathered against her. The city is plundered. The people oppressed. Then... Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. It's when he fights on the day of battle. The Lord, the God of Israel, will go out like a king before an army and go to battle for his people. It says on that day, uh, the Lord will go out and he'll appear on the Mount of Olives. I cut out and added in and cut out and now I'll just add it back in. Remember in the, in the, in the two towers at the Battle of Helm's Deep when the the good guys are all trapped in the fortress in the mountains and they're surrounded by enemy armies and they're going to make their last charge and think they'll die in that charge. And yet what do they see on the hill as the sun rises? The white rider leading his army comes over the hill to save the day. And that's what Zechariah is saying here. He's saying the city's surrounded. It's being plundered. 
And yet what appears? Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. Is when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. In Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel at the time of the Babylonian conquest, so 100 years or more before Zechariah's time, sees a glory of the Lord departing from the temple in Jerusalem and leaving the city of Jerusalem way out of the city, stops on the mountain to the east of the city and then heads out on its way. Now as the Lord returns to Jerusalem to go to battle for his people, his first stop is on the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. This is the first time the Mount of Olives is named in the whole Bible. Ezekiel just calls it the mountain to the east of the city. This Mount of Olives is actually a ridge that's over two miles long that runs north-south, parallel to the city of Jerusalem. And it's divided from the city by the Valley of Kidron that runs between, uh, the Kidron Valley that runs between the city and the Mount of Olives. Well, Zechariah says as the Lord approaches Jerusalem, he stands on this ridge. And as he stands on this ridge, it actually, Zechariah says, splits in two. Part of the ridge moves to the north, part moves to the south, and now there's a wide open valley that heads to the east that the people can escape from Jerusalem by way of this valley. But if we put together this picture that he's saying, he's saying God is standing on this ridge that splits in two, so God has a foot on either side of the ridge, as it were, and the people flee to this valley. They're fleeing to under God's feet. They're fleeing to God himself for protection. And Zechariah continues, Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Zechariah is using this picture language that's so not exactly clear. The holy ones may be his angelic armies, but they may just as well be those who have faithfully depended on the Lord from generations past. When the Lord comes, not only will mountains move, but there will be... You see in verses 6 and 7, on that day there will be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be one day or a unique day known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. The imagery isn't exactly clear, but the general sense is that when God wins, the days and seasons, the sun, moon, and stars will be supplanted by something greater, something brighter. Isaiah sees a similar vision in Isaiah 60, where he prophesies, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your glory. The sun shall no more go down. Your moon withdraw itself. The Lord will be your everlasting light. In Genesis 2, you might recall, the garden in Eden had four rivers flowing out from it to water the lands all about. Mount by a fort in Jerusalem will be new. They live water flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. In Zechariah 13, 1, a, a chapter earlier than the passage we're looking at now, Zechariah had already promised, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now Zechariah is saying this fountain that will be opened 
will overflow and it will flow out from Jerusalem as waters that bring life to the whole land that flows to the east and to the west. The nations rage. But Zechariah's encouragement is that God wins and this leads to the renewal and recreation of all things. And the climax of this passage comes in verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Of course, God has ruled all along. All the way back in verse 2, it says God controls and has authority over even these opposing nations. But when God ultimately wins, all the earth will recognize the Lord as king. His authority will be acknowledged. The second part of verse 9, the Lord will be one and his name one, is not saying that the Lord is currently two or three or four, but he'll join together somehow. Nothing like that. Over all the earth in every nation, the Lord alone will be recognized as God, and all people will call on him by one name. Paul uses similar language in 1 Corinthians 8. Although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, all things are, uh, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Zechariah is saying the same thing, that on the final day when the Lord reigns as king, all the earth will acknowledge him as such. We already looked at Zechariah 14, uh, uh, verses 16 and 17, that on that last day, even the survivors of these hostile enemies that attack Jerusalem will join in worshiping the King, the Lord of hosts. That's the ultimate goal of this whole story that Zechariah tells, is all the people joining together to worship God and acknowledge Him as King. Zechariah's message then is simple. The nations will rage and oppose God's people. But in the end, God wins. We're looking at Zechariah during Advent as a model of living in hope and preparing for the coming of the Lord. From Zechariah's standpoint, he looked ahead and he saw a day when God would come and deliver his people. But we are reading Zechariah from a different standpoint. Christ's first Advent has already happened, the coming of God to his people in Jesus Christ. In Mark 1.15, we read that Jesus preached the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The day has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. This is it. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Jesus, that day, the day that Zechariah looked forward to, has arrived. The kingdom of God, which is God's rule, his kingship, it is here. Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry, the kingdom of God is here. Zechariah longed for the day when God would come and deliver his people, and Jesus is born as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus' day is the day that Zechariah looked forward to. In Jesus Christ, we see the Lord coming and he stands on the Mount of Olives to prepare before he goes into battle. 
But Jesus doesn't go into battle with a sword or spear. He goes to battle on the cross with sin and evil and death itself. Jesus offers himself as a fountain in Jerusalem to cleanse from sin and uncleanness. And he promises in John 7, 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The spiritual renewal that Zechariah looked forward to has come in Christ Jesus. Jesus' victory looks initially like defeat. He brings good news, but he's opposed for it and ultimately is put to death. But even death cannot defeat Jesus. His victory is in his death and resurrection. But Jesus not only says the kingdom is here, now it's at hand, he also teaches his followers to pray, thy kingdom come, as we've already prayed this morning. And here is this paradox of Jesus' ministry. He simultaneously says the kingdom is now, it is at hand, it has come in Christ Jesus, and that God's kingdom, his rule, is still coming, that it must be sought out and longed for. And so this entire period then, from Jesus' first advent, his birth in a manger 2,000 years ago, to his second advent, when he comes again to judge the living and the dead, this entire period is the day that Zechariah looked forward to a day that is simultaneously battle, opposition, nations raging, and the day of God's deliverance and presence with his people. We have seen the Lord come to his people. Yet like Zechariah, God's people still face opposition, and so we long for the day when our king will return and bring peace. Christians know Jesus Christ as their king, and yet we still long for the day when the Lord will be king over all the earth. We face opposition as nations rage, but we face opposition in hope because we also know that in the end, God wins. Let us pray. Lord, teach us like Zechariah to look ahead in hope and longing to not fix our eyes on current events, but on the ultimate hope for all things, that you will come again as our King and our Lord and our Judge, that you will put the world right, that you will establish a kingdom of peace on the earth. Lord, may we, your people, prepare ourselves this Advent season. Let us not be caught up in the cares of this world, let us not be distracted by all the advertising and events that go on this next month, but that we be focused in, those, in the midst of this on our ultimate hope. Let us, Lord, as we spend time with family and friends this Christmas season, not be timid about sharing our hope, the reason we have for hope. Yes, we know it will sometimes face opposition, but other times, Lord, our friends and family may indeed join us in worshiping you, and so give us that hope. Some, Lord, hear this, and they're perhaps shaken, even hearing about wars coming, battles, and they have no hope. Lord, by your Spirit, drive them to flee to you, our true protection. 
Amen. We're actually going to confess our faith not using uh, the New City Catechism since we've stopped doing that for, uh, uh, while we're practicing the, for the Christmas program. We're not doing that in Sunday school, so we're going to pause off doing that. We're going to confess our faith using the words of the Nicene Creed, which is printed on page 846 in, in, the, in your hymnal, page 846. Uh, it's fitting that just as we're using the lectionary, uh, reflecting on passages that many churches around the world are reflecting on this Sunday that as we come to the Lord's table, which churches around the world partake in, we also confess our faith using a creed that churches around the world for the last 1,700 or so years have used. I ask you, Christian, what do you believe? We believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. 